Yftatrakon anna simbros, vexensonia nua simbria aiamnoth, aiataremia ten thamnatop aexon. Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And uh, today we are featuring a Conlang. It's been a little while since we've done a featured Conlang, so thought we should do it. And this one, it, the one we were going to be doing today is Kash. Uh, you may know about it because it won last year's Smiley. If you don't know, Smiley is just an award that David Peterson awards to conlangs that make him smile. So uh, I want to just start out randomly giving out awards too. <laughs> there used to be on the Zampas Bulletin Board conlang awards, but I don't know if people still do that. I also want to start forming institutes at random. Because <laughs> people invite you to talks and pay you very well to just talk about stuff, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, William, you had a, a quick sort of sidebar that you, you wanted to, to mention before we get right. into talking about cash. So. We, should have, we should have talked about this before we got onto uh, cash. So um, just because this is the sort of thing that interests me, I was sort of doing some research on Middle Persian and Avestan recently. And that's when I started to learn about just the magnificence of the Pahlavi writing system. So some people call Pahlavi, they confuse it and they use its name, the language Middle Persian, but that's not quite right. The writing system was used to write several um, Iranian languages. Um, uh, Parthian, which is one uh, Middle Persian, mostly associated with um, Zoroastrianism, is another. But there's also a Manichaean Middle Persian, which is a little bit different. So the writing system is based on Aramaic, like so many writing systems in the region. But because of how the letters were written over time, distinctions between different letters disappeared. So that the original Aramaic alphabet of 22 letters has been reduced to 12 meaning that a single mark may refer to three or four other sounds. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, the sort of thing that led Arabic to acquire dots for things that were otherwise identical. Um, so, fine, you're writing your Middle Persian whatever dialect in this uh, writing system, missing all sorts of stuff, no vowel sounds, except for the long vowels, again, keeping with Aramaic practice. Um, but because the people first writing this were also fluent in Aramaic, a huge percent of any Pahlavi text is going to be Aramaic words with Middle Persian grammar hanging off them. Hmm. Um, they're called Aramaeograms. Um, and they were such a problem early that pretty early in the history of the language, there were dictionaries of these. Oh. To help people cope. So in any given text, there's a good chunk of kind of Aramaic. I mean, they're called Aramaeograms because they're based on Aramaic, but you never know which form of what word is going to be picked. So many of your verbs are in the third person imperfective, Aramaic spelling, and then they attack, you know, the whatever, the Middle Persian. 
grammar is. So, so this you you were talking about this earlier, and so what the the deal is like? There's reason to believe these were just pronounced as the Middle Persian word. Yep. But they're spelled in Aramaic. Yep. It's like the worst <laughs> thing ever. It's not even. It's not even like you can understand. Like using kanji in Japanese, it's uh-huh. like okay, we use the, the the Chinese writing system and then we pronounce it in Japanese. But no, you are spelling in a phonemic writing system of another language something that's going to be pronounced totally differently. That's yep. Yep. crazy to me. However, um, that's the practice apparently that was chan- chancery practice. That was the practice and remains practice in. Um, Zoroastrian texts, Manichaean texts ditched the Aramaigrams and just spelled everything out phonetically. Okay. So that made life easier. But then there's also Pazend, which is what happens uh, when you had Middle Persian commentaries on the Avesta. Um, but they wanted those to be clear. So instead of being written in the Pahlavi writing system, it's all spelled out in the Avestan writing system. Um with various conventions and weirdnesses associated with that as well. So there are lots of ways to write Middle Persian. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, <laughs> sorry for that detour. I just thought it was no, so that's, marvelous that pe- that's, more people that's, should know. That's really interesting. Uh, I wish we could spend more time on that, but we have other plans for this episode. All right. So some background about uh, Kash. Uh, it was created by Roger Mills. And uh, he he was strongly influenced by um, Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. And Kash was sort of intended for a similar story to that where someone goes to this planet called Chindu and meets the Kash. Uh, so he created Kash and a little bit of... Uh, of two another language, two two other languages, two other languages um, that are uh, what Gur Gur languages are the other ones. There's which what are the names of the other two? There's um, Gur and Prevli. And Prevli, right? I know that there's um, Gur loanwords in here, right? We should mention that that Roger Mills was on the Conlang mailing list for a long time. He passed away. Yeah, last he was year. he was very active in the community and uh he passed away. When was it again? Uh late last year. I late last year. I forget the date. So that may have been in influence on the decision to for David to feature it. Sure. So it's talks about the this is spoken by an alien species, but not much detail is given. The fact that it's based on uh, on Leguin's work or inspired by Leguin's work, my my hunch is that they they're they're roughly human like, and the phonology looks pretty pretty human like anyway. Right. Um, I mean, my thing is in science fiction, aliens are just someone's decided to pick on a particular aspect of humanity and turn it into an entire culture. Yeah, very often that's I mean, what it's, it is. Some authors go full alien anthropology, but most don't. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are on his website various things related to um, culture and history of this world. Um, and 
since I focus mostly on the grammar documentation, there are also notes about, you know, native grammarians having opinions about things and school teachers having opinions about things. Yes, yes. And um, I have uh, a couple things to mention about that. But, um, but yeah, it's always fun to see that, to have some note from uh, the uh, the local grammarians and such to say, oh, they think think of it this way. Now, uh, just sort of to get started, as we usually do, uh, phonology, I mean, not so much in the inventory, just that the stops are plain versus prenasalized. Yes. Although it seems the prenasalized seem to behave a lot like like they're just voiced and then the prenasalization is extra or something. But um, the interesting thing in the phonology is these um, Sunday rules where, you know, you get all kinds of changes based on, you know, two consonants butting up against each other, uh, such as if you get any nasal against any fricative, they coalesce into the corresponding stop. And it looks like it takes the the place from the fricative. So yeah. he has, so like he has examples, uh, mm and s go to t, uh, mm and h go to k. So yeah, it's taking the the place from the fricative, but these uh these coalesce and become the stop. In uh, another one that I enjoyed is any nasal plus l becomes um nd. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes the prenasalized d, the nd. So that's an interesting thing, and something that um, that David pointed out in his um, in in the his write up for the smiley is that uh, these aren't universally applied. So you can have this idea. You can think about apparently, you know, this happens a lot. These these Sunday rules apply a lot with morphology, but he mentioned, what is it? Um, the, you find in the future forms that the, the Sunday applies when you have nasal, a nasal at the end of the vowel, you get the, the, that coalescence and stuff, but in the past tense forms, it doesn't happen. Right. Um, the language is, um, moderately prefixing, Mm-hmm. And some of these changes make me think a little bit about Indonesian. And I think that Roger knew either Malay or Indonesian. Hmm. Um, it's not identical in all cases, certainly, but it seems there seems to be some inspiration there. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. So the, there are the, the changes themselves are, are very like interesting, not things that I usually see in a conlang, but not, crazy i could i could see these kinds of things happening in in uh, a natural language too um right. if you have time to visit his website he has a large document on guer sound changes which is remarkable and terrifying <laughs> i think there's just there's a huge amount of stuff going on uh okay so um william why don't you take you have uh, a lot more uh, stuff about uh, grammar and stuff than I have written down. So why don't okay, you take the sure. lead here? Um, it has a native writing system, which also looks inspired by Southeast Asian writing systems. 
Um, it's uh, alphabetic, though. Mm-hmm. You have the little eyeballs on the ends of, uh, you know, ascenders and descenders. Yes. Um, but the vowels, the vowels are just vowel letters. There's not, you know, um, the, the, the complexity that you get out of these in, you know, say Thai or Lao. Mm-hmm. Um, for some reason, he put his discussion of intonation in the syntax section. Yes, but, I noticed that. But there's a lot going on. There's certainly more than most conlangers bother with. Yeah. So that's, that's worth looking at a little bit. It's nice that he thought to, to write all of that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, you do have to sort of read through his explanation and get at what his um, particular notation is when sure. you're looking through it. But, yeah, it's very good. Yeah, this is this is a very old school web page. The font is small. The text goes from margin to margin. So um, there's yeah, it, there's a, a lot of reading going on. Yeah, the language has modest amounts of reduplication. Um, intensity is one thing that gets reduplicated, but there's also reciprocals and verbs and various kinds of um, just sort of routine lexicalized things that aren't necessarily obviously derivational. Hmm. Um, as I said, the morphology is moderately prefixing both for inflection um, and derivation. Mm-hmm. So that's nice. I didn't notice any infixes, which I would have expected from someone super familiar with the um, Austronesian languages, but maybe he just decided that was too much. Um, moving on to the nouns. Um, the nouns distinguish animate versus inanimate. Um, yeah. And, the and he calls he calls inanimate neuter, by the way. Right. Um, and that comes up because the pronouns uh, distinguish masculine, feminine, and neuter in the singular. Mm. And they distinguish animate versus inanimate in the plural. Mm-hmm. Um, and the language is pretty sensitive to animacy all over the place. Verb semantics, which cases you use... Um, all uh, often reference animacy in general. Um, I don't know how, I don't know if there are any words necessarily that mismatch um, their sort of class versus the sort of natural animacy, if that has any sort of distinction. I didn't notice anything about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The language has four cases, nominative, genitive, dative, and accusative, um, which behave in funny ways we'll get to in a moment. Noun phrase is pretty standard for a VSO language. Quantifiers come before the noun phrase and pretty much everything else follows. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything that marks number, like numbers or quantifiers, um, ejects overt plural marking on nouns. Mm. Um, Which, again, happens in natural languages. Um, In terms of, uh, there's all sorts of case funkiness going on, which is pretty fun. Um, well thought out, in my opinion, in the sense of he just sat down to think about stuff. Um, the accusative case um, is pretty fun for human objects because you can only use the accusative case for people when the object has eye, or rather high objecthood. That is some sort of actual physical interaction for the most part. Right. And the dative is used otherwise. So, for example, verbs of perception like see for a human direct object takes the dative. Mm hmm. Um, and then he makes a note that the system is breaking down a bit and that 
you, you're never going to be wrong except for a school teacher if you just always use a dative for a human direct object. Right. Regardless and, of the verb semantics. And a, a notable thing is that since the accusative is so restrictive, the uh, inanimate nouns don't even have accusative forms. So right. the, they have the nominative and accusative are merged. Right. And that happens in some Indo-European languages. And in languages that have um, sort of optional case marking, mm-hmm. it tends more likely to be optional. You expect inanimate things to be objects more often than subjects in general. Right. So this is a, a general tendency across language where we're fussier about marking human or high agency objects than we are about low agency objects who are sort of naturally slot into that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I thought that was interesting to have the sort of language change picture going on. The native grammarians distinguish stative verbs, which are basically adjectives, action verbs, and um, what did he call the other ones? Were those perception verbs? Mm. Uh, uh, right, no. Uh, the last ones are um, experiential or psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a very common breakdown in human psychology. Right. Um, and even though you have these state of things that are like adjectives, they can still be used attributively without any funky marking. Mm-hmm. He has a, for a conlanger, his verb derivations are quite um, restrained. <laughs> there are really only four of them. Um, causative and incoative seem to be restricted to intransitives. I couldn't mm-hmm. verify that. There are some that definitely look transitive, but he also has um, a note that these seldom, if ever, mean make or force someone to do something. Oh. Um, Interesting. Which seems to exclude certainly high transitivity verbs. Uh, but then we have... Uh, all oh, right, these are declared for us. Yeah, um, and the causative and encoded markers also uh, cause uh, those sorts of verbs can't be used in certain uh, constructions. He discusses later in the syntax. Right. He has something that he calls an accidental, mm-hmm. um, which he describes as being sort of like a quote unquote paranoid passive. That is, that the resulting state is almost always undesirable or culturally negative. Okay. So, afflicted by, overcome by, something unexpectedly happens in a bad way, that sort of thing. Yeah. That just, like, seems like a very specific kind of passive. (laughs) Yeah. We do find, I mean... uh, In in Chinese, people will say that the passive with bay is almost always negative. Right, and that's true of, of Vietnamese is also asserted as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not surprising to me, it wouldn't be surprising to me to, to have a, a language that has a passive that's that's mostly negative. People people claim that sort of about English, but it's not really true, so. Right. Um, and then these uh, the accidentals have a, a more complicated uh, syntax in terms of marking subject. Mm-hmm. And all of that, which is discussed more in the syntax section. And finally, you have a potential form, um, 
which is kind of like be able to do something, but there's lots of idiomatic um, derivations as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. What next? He thought carefully about the auxiliary verbs, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a new obsession of mine. Um, it appears to be uh, double marked. That is, both the auxiliary and the lexical verb are marked for subject. Okay. Except that either may drop the subject marking, um, apparently, in free variation. Yeah, that's... That's mm. a little less natural, I think, but... Yeah. Um, and then, for fun, he's got things that we would think of as um, adverbs or uh, mood um, are indicated with auxiliary. So you have some... The normal construction, apparently, for maybe or possibly um, mm-hmm. is a... Uh, Auxiliary, um, and there was some mood thing, but I can't find it right now. In the syntax section, there's lots of stuff, uh, lots of detail we're not going to go into. A lot of thinking went into relative clauses and how those work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good example of, you know, just thinking things through. Um, he talks about style in interesting ways. Um, and then... There's this just wonderful suffix, maybe a clitic, ni and i, which has lots of different functions and gets plenty of loving attention mm-hmm. in the in the syntax. Um, it can either be the third person possessive suffix. It can mark definiteness, but not for humans. Uh-huh. It can be a verb or adjective-like thing, nominalizer, in preference to the dying gerund slash infinitive marker. Uh, and then it has a bunch of... Uh, uh, it's used to mark possession for inanimates, mostly. Um, and finally, it's used in a bunch of idiomatic ways. So that's... Yeah, I love that. Because that's a thing that you find in natural languages all the time, is you end up with some some little suffix or some little particle that does like these 10 different things. Yep. And it it can take linguists a long time to like puzzle out exactly what it does. <laughs> Cuz they're all different. Mhm. Um and one of the uses uh is you know kind of dispreferred by the local school teachers. <laughs> uh, let's see of here. Course. Uh Aside from its use as a third-person possessive suffix, it has three other important and very frequent functions. Open parentheses, far too frequent in the opinion of many grammar school teachers who have coined the term nini nini chaka nini to point up and criticize their students' overuse or misuse of ni. <laughs> okay. So that's fun. I enjoyed that. Um... And he goes into descriptions of all of this, including the, the nominalization stuff, which is fun and a little bit complicated. Um, I was going to say, and then he's got his whole section describing these accidental verbs and how things are, are coped with. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of idiomatic derivations. So like the the noun chaya, meaning light, produces chakaya, which means blinded by a bright light. Mm-hmm. Um, nuro means deep. Chaka nuro means lost at sea. Right. So, and there's just a, a bunch of these which are fun. Um, he has comparatives for his adjectives. Nothing shocking there. Um, 
Unfortunately, he got reasonably far in this, and then the last few sections are lists, which presumably he was going to expand out at some point. Um, We know that he knows or knew in his mind a lot more of the language because there's some pretty substantial texts available on the website as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a Loco Rimo for 2009, which is huge. Yes. Um, There's a recipe for shrimp, some shrimp dish. (laughs) Um, uh, He wrote a, a wedding ceremony. So there are various texts. And I think he participated in at least one relay, possibly. I wonder about several. Maybe it would be interesting for someone to go through those texts and also go through his grammar and like reanalyze things and see if they can pick out and find the the things that are not described. Yeah, that would be quite a task, though. Yeah, it would be definitely. It's you know, well, as much as any deciphering of a of of a. a language would be, but uh, it might be interesting to see someone try that. I don't have time for it. <laughs> Wait a second. You have a child. You do not have time. <laughs> yes. Um, and so we both saw, like, the dictionary is great. Uh, it's uh, a, It has a big focus on telling you what terms are derived from each entry word. And uh, we both, uh, I, William, I think we both saw immediately uh, Haniyu. Right. Right. So, the, hilariously, the dictionary is organized in the native sound system. Yeah. So, so H comes first. H comes first. A is way near the end. Uh-huh. And and in, very soon you come to Haniyu, which uh, it has a combining form, Hanyu. And there's just... Like so many different derivations that are listed here, Hanyuavan, sad at heart. Right, we should say that the the base meaning is soul, spirit, mind, conscience. Right, right. And uh, but there's there's Hanyuavan, sad, sad at heart, grieving. Hanyu Hanyukorok, corrupt, immoral. Hanyuvirap, determined. And even like, um, uh, let's see. Trahaniyu, mindless, soulless, incoherent, can refer to chaos, time before creation. So, you know, he this that's a particularly big example, and there's many more that I'm not going to list here. But uh, uh, for that particular word, but uh, he does do a lot of uh, stuff, and there's little bits of like con world that end up stuck in here. Like, um, Haprali, where's Haprali? A little further down, where's, oh, I don't even know how the order works to find Haprali, but it's, uh, it's a name for a certain type of animal on Chindu, and he has, like, the forest Haprali and the, the Ice King Haprali and all this that are, you know, presumably different species of it. And also I mentioned, I, I saw that he does have a word Hain referring to uh, the planet in uh, Ursula Le Guin's universe, Hain. So uh, we were 
going back and forth, William and I, whether he considered this planet to be a part of that universe or whether that this is just, you know, an, an homage to Le Guin. But that's an interesting thing that he included that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it was more an inspiration, but... Yeah. Yeah, the dictionary is huge. I mean, not all... I mean, there are plenty of entries that are just, you know, nyanak, meaning to scratch an itch, but many of them have um, both derivations and examples and explanations. Um, yeah. In, in the grammar, and not as much in the dictionary, but more in the grammar, he's really good about giving the source for grammaticalization paths... Um, so you know where things are derived from, which is fun. And David even made a special mention of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good thing to do, even if only to yourself. Oh, there's a supplement to the dictionary. Right. He he would add words and then merge them periodically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Oh, this is fun. Tukrim. Colloquial Turi. Various lizard species and a few mammals capable of flight that also sing or have an audible cry. <laughs> so bird-like things. Yes. As we said earlier, he has two other languages um, not described terribly well. Um, <laughs> let me go back to that. He's got Gwer, um, which just is very preliminary. Um, but as I said, there's a link to the sound changes document, which is... Uh, huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Prevly, which has a fairly substantial word list and a start of the grammar, but, uh, right. But, but not much else. I hope, I mean, this is a, a tripod site. I hope that it is being preserved somewhere because it'd be sad if it went away because he's not tending it anymore. I wonder if, um, see, it's hard to say whether tripod will stay forever. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, it can be in archive.org. Probably. Uh, it's probably in the Wayback machine somewhere. Uh, I wonder if, uh, the LCS could host it. Maybe we can think about that. Right. Um, um, what else? Yeah. yeah. Kosh looks fun. I think the, the best fun for Kosh is either to look at his posts about it on, um, archives of the Conlang mailing list or to look at his texts a little more closely. We've not given everything of the flavor of the language. Right. Uh, which is, which is pretty substantial. It's pretty large. It's a long term yes. project. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Kikayokash, neuter plural of Kikayoka, colloquial uncouth men, tough guys, ruffians, no good nicks. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, I like that. No good nicks. George, do you have anything to say about the number system? Uh, there's not really much. Yeah. It's kind of the the straight up boring Chinese style system. There's an interesting thing of like uh, what in the thousands. The uh, let me find the numbers again real quick. I think in the so the word for which one. Okay, four is ha, and it gets an L inserted into it when it's it's combined in the thousands. Oh. Uh, yeah, and it's that's that just seems to be like a random irregularity uh, influenced by another number possibly. Um, and then 
the only thing is um, there's native terms up to uh, a billion and then trillion, quadrillion, quintillion are loan words from Gur. So, yeah, there's not really that much interesting about it other than other than that. Um, <laughs> Beyond this, as the Kosh say, only children and bankers want names. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then they, uh, he, he talks about they basically use people basically beyond that just use something equivalent to scientific notation. Right. So and uh, oh, here's another use of reduplication is to do um, distributives. So mesa, mesa, one by one. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. Mesa, mesa. And then it becomes mesa. OK, it's an option. Yes, there's a partial and a yeah. reduplication. Interestingly, the the ordinal prefix, he actually is like, oh, and this is apparently from kunjo, kunjo to divide. So it's interesting that he decided to okay give that a uh, a particular etymology. So it's always fun to try to figure out where things come to 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 um, come up with uh, where things come from. Um, and he's got a whole like, nice list of interjections, which for some reason is on the same page as the numbers. Oh, pieces. Oh, They're called pieces. Yeah. So that's another, it's a, another one of the, um, the, the places where he picks up, uh, some native grammarian stuff. It's like, this is the traditional grammar for this language. The, in the, the traditional grammar, of uh of cash um basically groups together bound particles which it calls uh like bound morphemes which it calls captured pieces and a bunch of things like interjections and conjunctions and prepositions as as uh loose pieces or free pieces well, it's it's ham, hambiash pefa, and then the captured is uh, hambiash lipat. Um, uh, so he just decided to introduce that, and he's talking about mainly the quote unquote free pieces. Sure. Which is like particles, but also things that we wouldn't really call necessarily particles. So. Par- particles, the dumping ground for everything we don't have a better name for. See, for the ancient Greeks didn't... I mean, they had a word for particle, but mostly they just called anything that they couldn't figure out an adverb. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Okay. That works. Yep. Um, yeah. I don't know that we have too much else to say about Kosh. Mm, No, not really. It's a fun little language. uh... Although I say little, it has a larger dictionary than most people manage. Uh yeah, it has it has a good dictionary. I don't know how, like how count. many words this is. Or it's it's there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you got to scroll for a pretty long time. So yeah, yeah, and A is like the third from the end. Yeah, the vowels come last. Mm-hmm. No, it's the oh the the last few are the I E A U O in that order. Okay. So, this is important. Yeah. He has a word for aspic. That's very important. 
What's aspic again? <laughs> it's it's just it's jello but s- salty instead of sweet. Oh, it's a classic of the fifties. Is to embed you know hard boiled eggs and random bits into uh, a meat flavored jello. Oh, that's right, right. My no. wife makes an aspic out of uh, pigskin. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I just never. I just I knew. I knew that term because I'd looked it up, but we just call it pigskin. <laughs> I just like that he needed a word for aspic and kosh. That just makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Because it's not a word. It's not. Um, that's not a food that's currently in high repute <laughs> in this culture. <laughs> Look at any cookbook from the 50s and there's tomato aspic this, tomato aspic that, but not anymore. That's that's interesting. Okay. So, anyway, I, I think that's all we have to say about cash, then. Yep. Cash. Whatever. Uh, so, thank you all for listening. The, William, do you have any other random notes to add? Nope. Okay. So, that wraps that up. Uh, we will have links to uh, David Peterson's smiley post and to um, the the website for cash. Uh, hopefully it will still be around uh, by the time people listen to this. You know, there could be people from years in the future listening to this podcast. So right, have to keep that in mind. But uh, you guys go and check it out. Definitely there is a lot of material to go through if you want to really get to know this language and the other languages that he has and the other random bits of stuff that he has on the site like he has like a bunch of recipes yeah i think i think random average conlanger is probably going to find just browsing the dictionary interesting and useful yes yes it's it's a a very fun thing to do to to see where he went certain words because of you know the derivational aspect of the dictionary all right so with all of that I'm going to say thank you and happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, and on Tumblr now. All of those you just find conlangery. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society... Our theme music is by Null Device, and our new site was designed by Bianca Richards.